Welcome to Lumpen Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on Lumpen Radio. This week, we discussed how the IRS is punishing the poor, learned about a civil rights-era photographer who was an informant for the FBI, and pondered turning trash into art. All this, plus brand new segments from Size Matters, Are We Cool Yet?, and the Trump Diaries. It's all only on the Lumpen Week in Review for February 22nd. 2019. I-94 chatted with Preston Lauterbach, author of Bluff City. Lauterbach's new book details the story of a pioneering African-American photographer at the heart of the civil rights movement, who is also an FBI informant. Lauterbach discusses the career of Ernest Withers, the life of intelligence operatives, and if Withers betrayed the movement's ideals. I-94, Lumpen Radio's books and literature show, airs every Sunday at 11 a.m. So, uh, Bluff City is an interesting new book. It is about, let's just set it up a little bit before we get to Preston. And uh, he's written a number of other books, including The Chitlin Circuit, The Road to Rock and Roll. I should admit that this book is out from uh, W.W. Norton. The publishers like it when I say that. This is an interesting book. It is about a pioneering black photographer uh, who was working uh, in the South, in Memphis, Tennessee specifically, during the 1950s and 1960s who uh, was later discovered, not during his career, and I want to make that very clear, but after his tenure uh, as a photographer, to be an informant for the FBI. And Preston, I wonder if you could take us through why this interested you, because your own family has some intelligence ties as well as you detail in the start of the book. Yeah, well, you know, the the story interested me simply because it just was so shocking. Mr. Withers was himself a civil rights legend, having covered so many important stories from uh, the trial of Emmett Hill's killers, you know, down in Mississippi in 55, the Montgomery bus boycott, all the way up through the sanitation strike uh, that led to the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King. Withers was everywhere, and um, for him to have been a a witness to the civil rights movement, obviously such a, a sympathetic person in the way that he portrayed the movement and told the stories with his camera and risked uh, his own skin in so doing. It's such a shock, and it was so incongruous to learn that he had been working secretly for the FBI all of those years. And so, yeah, I mean, you didn't really have to break it down further than that to get me interested. But coming from a, an intelligence family, to be specific about that, my grandfather was a CIA operative uh, in South America from the inception of the agency until he retired in, uh, well, actually, he, he left the field in 63 and retired in 73. So, you know, I, I have a, and he never talked about any of uh, his, his operations. He really believed in the ironclad oath, but we knew what he had done very generally, and he would make remarks about the nature of the work. And so, to me, uh, an intelligence operative is a, a fairly regular human being and not um, a guy in a tuxedo with paralyzing dart cufflinks and that kind of stuff. <laughs> and so, so I, I brought a little bit of that perspective to, to Withers. I also had the opportunity to meet Withers and spend a little bit of time in his company and to kind of see him around Memphis. He was still working as a photojournalist up into his 80s, and so I, as a reporter, would run into him at events from time to time. And that was kind of surreal because he was such a uh, such an iconic figure, and, and to see that he was still working probably should have told me how poorly journalists are paid and sent me packing to another profession, to law school or something. But... Uh, you know, having all of those perspectives and then to learn after he had passed away that, that he had been an operative um, with the, the FBI, you know, is generally considered to be the enemy of the civil rights movement. Uh, quite naturally, I had to look into that. I, I wondered if you could take us through a little bit of the of where uh, Ernest Withers fit in. For those people that are not super up on American journalism, uh, there was a thriving uh, African-American press that existed during that period. The Chicago Defender still publishes today here. I don't know what the equivalent would be in Memphis, but Ernest Withers was a contemporary of other photographers such as Teeny Harris, the legendary Pittsburgh photographer yeah. who photographed African-American life during the same time period. And these people were extremely pivotal figures. When we're, we're talking about this book, I think it's really important to put it in a context that uh, for the African-American experience, Photography and documentation that they actually existed was something that was very new to Americans. 
the the idea that African Americans could see people who look like themselves, see people in everyday life, see people doing normal things was new. It was not as if uh, during the 1800s and early parts of the uh, 20th century that African Americans could see themselves reflected at all in popular culture. So what Withers and, and Harris and other photographers were doing was was extremely important to the black community, which I think, Preston, is why you suggest that his... Um, I wouldn't say you use the word betrayal, but the idea that he was, as you put it earlier, working with uh, a group that was often seen as the enemy of the civil rights movement would be so striking and so profound. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, the, you speak of the importance of photography telling the story of black America. I mean, you've got to realize the uh, segregated America that we're talking about and that went for the media as well, and the depictions of African-American life and the civil rights struggle um, were not as, as prominent or as abundant in the white press as black citizens really hoped they would be. And so the black press led very much by the Chicago Defender, which was the only African-American daily published in the, in the U.S. for quite a long time, uh, did something they really even the score as far as, as public perception and understanding of what African-American life was like. And really, Withers stepped, as a photographer, stepped into the black media at such an important moment because it was that photograph of Emmett Hill, the Chicago youth who was slain down in Mississippi that ran in uh, Jet Magazine that really propelled the push for civil rights to a, to a new intensity. It had always been there, but that picture of, of that boy really rallied everybody and gave everybody a very simple, automatic, common goal and an understanding of the stakes to work. That was a unifying moment, as, as awful as it was. And so Withers uh, came into the black media right at that moment, right when the, the still photograph was... was uh, inspiring and intensifying a new level of civil rights commitment. And at the same time, you know, there was a, as I said, a segregated black media. So you had these black papers publishing all over the country, the Defender, the Baltimore Afro-American. Uh, you had uh, Johnson Publications, Jet and Ebony, out of Chicago? That's yes. correct, yes. Yeah, so Withers worked for them as well. And uh, he was the go-to guy for all of these media sources down south. And so he's provided, you know, a much-needed visual record for what was going on because it was isolated and, and, you know, it wasn't necessarily the best thing for the powers that be for these stories and images to get out. I'll tell you, a big one that ran on the, the cover of the Chicago Defender that really changed history, Withers was down in Montgomery, Alabama in 1956 at the culmination of the Montgomery bus boycott that Rosa Parks had helped begin by refusing to give up her seat on the front, and that uh, Dr. Martin Luther King, as a young local minister at that time, had really helped to sustain through his activism. And that was really the event that propelled Dr. King to national prominence. And when the federal judge issued the order to desegregate the buses and basically let black people ride wherever they wanted to, Withers got on the first bus out of the barn that morning and waited for King. And so King and, and uh, Ralph Abernathy, King's longtime lieutenant, got on board, and Withers ended up taking the, the first picture of Dr. King at the front of the bus. Well, that ran on the front page of, of the Defender and other African-American newspapers, and that really helped to reinforce this growing iconic status uh, of Dr. King. And there was, I'll tell you another interesting little moment uh, from that story that you wouldn't necessarily know. Uh, Withers was working with an editor by the name of L. Alex Wilson, who ended up uh, helming the Chicago Defender for a couple of years at the end of his life. And Withers and Wilson are, are up at 4 o'clock in the morning and trying to, to catch this bus and, and capture the story in the best way that they can. And Withers, the photographer, asks his editor, he says, well, how, how, do we, how do we understand what, what picture to take? How do we understand exactly the way to depict uh, this movement and these activities? And the editor just said very simply, you have to ask yourself, is it true? Does it hurt? What good does it do? And so that was getting back to your earlier point about the importance of photography at that particular time. That was really the ethos that guided 
uh, the photographer in, in telling these, these critical stories at that time. In the fall of 1963, the Memphis Nation of Islam Mosque seemed on the verge of a growth spurt. To unveil its newly renovated headquarters, the temple minister planned a huge meeting and hoped to bring in the black Muslim star Malcolm X as a guest speaker. He circulated his plans to mosque leaders throughout the region, hoping to make Memphis the South's Mecca for a day. But on December 1st, Malcolm X made a remark that seemed to celebrate the assassination of President Kennedy. NOI leader Elijah Muhammad suspended Malcolm, preempting his participation in Memphis and any other official NOI business. The Memphis Mosque grand opening became a smaller party. Withers brought his third son Clarence, known as Billy, to hear a sermon at the new temple. The men sat on one side of the room, the women on the other. Above a freshly built rostrum, a banner displayed an American flag in the left corner and a Muslim crescent and a star on the right. Between the two symbols were the words, which one will survive the war of Armageddon? Christianity, Islam, slavery, freedom, suffering, justice, death, equality. In his sermon, the minister surprised Withers, attacking the Caucasian race. Withers had found this man quiet and likable offstage, but saw a changed person at the podium, spewing venom and vitriol at white devils and black Christians while sarcastically deriding the Civil Rights Bill, the Supreme Court, and public education. Three years earlier, when Withers began investigating the Nation of Islam, he had seen the social benefits of Islam and had moderated the Muslim message in his reports to the FBI. Now, although he had felt the billy club, tasted jail food, and seen casualties on his side, he had no sympathy for the extremist, militant, violent rhetoric coming from the mosque. He became suspicious. He secretly photographed one of the brothers. He sold Lawrence photos of four members of the temple, photos the mosque minister himself had commissioned Withers to take. One of Withers' pictures appeared in the official NOI newspaper, Muhammad Speaks, without a credit line in the May 22, 1964 edition. The image shows six brothers, all wearing suits, two with bow ties, posing outside the storefront temple at 364 Beale. The FBI received a copy of the image as well. Chuck Murr spoke with journalist Jesse Isinger about how the IRS shifted from enforcing the tax code to auditing the poor. Isinger tells the tale of an IRS dying by a thousand cuts and pressured by wealthy politicians into investigating the working poor. This is Hell airs every Sunday at 10 a.m. Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter Jesse Isinger has returned to This Is Hell. He is a contributor to the sweeping ProPublica investigation gutting the IRS. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Jesse. Hey, Chuck. Thanks for having me back. Jesse co-authored with Paul Keel three of the stories in the series, including Who's More Likely to be Audited? A Person Making 20000 or $400,000 a Year, How the IRS Was Gutted, which was co-published with The Atlantic, and After Budget Cuts, the IRS's Work Against Tax Cheats is Facing Collapse, which was co-published with The New York Times. You can uh, find the entire series, Gutting the IRS, at ProPublica.org, and you can follow Jesse on Twitter at Isinger. Jay. So today we're going to be talking about your writing at ProPublica on the IRS. But the last time we had you on, I knew you had come up in conversation on our show prior to your appearance, and I couldn't remember when it was. So I looked it up, and it turns out you were mentioned in a conversation with Michael Massing, who uh, was on our show, has been on several times. Michael was on to discuss his article that appeared in the New York uh, Review of Books, how to cover the 1%. In that column, Michael quotes an email he received from you on the news media that reads how they, quote, don't adequately cover how corporations keep their wages down, treat their employees in general, fight unions, lobby for their corporate needs, arrive at decisions to pay their top executives, or dominate their markets. We don't hear about the GM or VW scandals until after they break. Once they do, we get good coverage, but that's Archaeology, not detective work. Where is the coverage of Boeing, 3M, DuPont, FedEx, or CVS, energy, insurance, trucking, construction? So how does any lack of coverage of the IRS outside of your investigation fit into your criticism that the news media doesn't cover the stories about big corporations and industries' treatment of workers? Do you see that same kind of criticism? Can you apply the same kind of criticism in the lack of coverage of what's happening with the IRS? 
Uh, I think you can see it in two ways. One is that uh, the Washington press corps is dominated by people who cover politics and people who cover a lot of frivolous aspects of politics. It's not exclusively frivolous. There's a lot of quality um, reporting, but it's quality reporting that tends to focus on policy. And then, you know, now we have uh, a lot of focus on the White House and we've had pretty good coverage, I think, since Trump was elected of the Trump administration, the uh, conflicts of interest, the investigations. That has been pretty good. But uh, what we don't have a lot of is coverage of the agencies. Um, And if you look at the Trump administration broadly, you see a very different picture than the White House. The White House looks, Trump looks incompetent. He looks weak. the uh, it's chaos every day. There, you know, people are coming and going and uh, dishing on him, and all all of that is important to understand. But beneath the surface, you have an extremely effective administration. It is not incompetent at all. What you're seeing with the administration is an effective dismantling of the regulatory state. You remember Steve Bannon talked about dismantling the administrative state as a goal. Well, they're doing it. Um, and, you know, there's some writing about it. ProPublica is trying to focus on it. Um, and others do, too, periodically. But there's not a sustained effort. And the IRS was is part of our effort to focus on the bureaucracy that keeps our country functioning. Uh, and I want to get to your writing, but I just want to follow up on something you said. What does the voter get wrong? What, what, do you get, what do we get wrong when we view the Trump administration as incompetent? Is that, a, is that dangerous? Do we do that at our own risk, labeling the Trump administration incompetent? Yeah, absolutely, because uh, what they're doing with regulatory agencies is highly competent and highly efficient. And what they're doing is rolling back regulations. So uh, if you look at what they've done with the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, for instance, is a new regulator that started up in the wake of the financial crisis. It was was the brainchild of Elizabeth Warren. Uh, It was created under the Dodd-Frank sweeping overhaul of our financial regulatory apparatus. And the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, just to use one example, you can look at the Environmental Protection Agency or the IRS or Uh, the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency, a wide variety of uh, regulators, the SEC, um, the Department of Justice, in fact. But um, just take a look at the, you know, as an example, the CFPB. This was created because of the revelation after the financial crisis that no financial regulator, and we have a ton of them, um, no financial regulator actually had as its primary mandate looking at consumers and how they were screwed looking at them and saying, wow, mortgages were an exploitative product that were being sold to people and they didn't know what they were getting and they got trapped in predatory loans. But there are also payday loans and student loans and military families are extremely vulnerable to predatory lenders. And there was no regulator looking out for them. So what did we do? We created this new regulatory um, body to just protect consumers. And it was quite effective in the early years. And banks hated it. And financial companies hated it. And the payday lenders in particular hated it. And so what happened when the Trump administration came in? Well, Trump appointed Mick Mulvaney, his uh, director of the Office of Management and Budget, as his side job, not his not his main job. Um, he had a day job, but it's his side job. Come in and, and run the CFPB. And Mulvaney ran it for the first uh, you know year or so after uh, he got appointed, just as the acting director. And uh, he succeeded with a handful of appointees, you know, three or four appointees, to go about dismantling it. And if you see Scott Pruitt at the EPA or Ryan Zinke at Interior, um, and there are a wide variety of regulators um, you know, that people haven't really heard of or focused on, like the National Labor Relations Board or the uh, OSHA, the Worker Protection um, Office. These are being gutted uh, because there's a regulatory strike, um, so they're not punishing bad actors. 
Um, you see that at the SEC and the DOJ. And there's also a rollback of regulations that are highly industry-friendly. So they've appointed regulators who are actually lobbyists. Um, so the new appointee at the EPA after um, Pruitt left, he was obviously highly controversial, he's a lobbyist. And he has uh, put in place industry-friendly regulations and rolled them back. So that's what's happening at the Trump administration that it's hard to focus on. It's arcane. Um, it's not as sexy as Mueller's investigation. But that's really where the efficiency is happening really that's competent um, and it's directed and it has specific clear goals um, to roll back regulations and aid corporations um, and they, they're doing that when it comes to the IRS has the Trump administration again appointed somebody who is actually uh, you know, opposed to the functioning of that agency as has happened at the EPA is the same thing again happening at the IRS it's a slightly different story of the IRS, actually, um, because the gutting of the IRS is really a pre-Trump story. It's a Republican effort, um, a Republican project. It was a Republican project, though, that really started in earnest in 2011 um, when the Tea Party Congress came into power. Um, the IRS has been um, relatively recently a focus of Republican ire. So if you go back to, it's really a kind of, Gingrich contract with America, 1990s uh, kind of focus. The idea was we could abolish the IRS. They they ran on this slogan. Um, before the 1990s, you kind of had a bipartisan um, agreement that we needed a functioning tax system. I mean, and you you alluded to it, but I just you know just to ground us in the basic premise here. You know, everybody sort of hates the IRS. They don't like to pay taxes. I understand that. I mean, it's not fun to have to pay your taxes. But we have worried in the last few years about having a functioning democracy and whether our Constitution is strong enough to withstand the kind of threat of Trump and his authoritarian tendencies. Um, but before you have a functioning democracy, you have to have a functioning state. And the functioning state is predicated on a tax collection system that works. And tax collection has to work and it has to be viewed as equitable, that everybody pays into the system. And we are on the verge of having a broken tax collector. We are on the verge of, the IRS is on life support. And the result of that is that we're not collecting taxes adequately. And what that really means is that we are not collecting taxes from corporations and from the wealthy, and that the tax burden is falling disproportionately on the middle class and we'll get to it in a second because you alluded to it, the poor, especially the working poor. But that's the threat, that that starts to not just threaten our democracy, but just the mere functioning, the basic functioning of our society. And it's not really a Trump story. It's a story that's happened with Democrats uh, looking the other way and not really resisting and not fighting for the IRS because it's unpopular politically, and the Republicans with a concerted effort to defund the bureaucracy. Jesus, Kyle, I always thought your homeless bum look was an affectation. What are you talking about, Jess? Well, you're pushing a full shopping cart of trash down the middle of Morgan Street in a snowstorm. Hold on a second. There's got to be some place you can go. Do libraries still exist? This is no shopping cart. This is my chariot. And with a little help, it'll carry me to race victory. I hope I don't understand what you meant by that. You haven't heard of the Bridgeport? I did a Nimrod thingy. It's huge. The Iditarod? Oh, there is no way that you or that shopping cart are making it to a dog race in Alaska. Yeah, we got one right here in Bridgeport. Been running it every winter since the 30s. I am finding this difficult to believe. Oh, you find it difficult to believe. Well, now, let me tell you something. I gotta go hide stuff for half price at Unique on Monday right now, so I don't have time for your crazy today. Well, hold on a sec. There's a lot of history and probably some safety concerns, but the main point is the first prize is 500 simoleons. Wow, I cannot wait to support this proud local tradition. 
Where do we start? First, we gotta find some dogs. Once we got those, we can enter the race. Piece of cake. I gotta ask you, what the truck is this? Oh, it's the new dog yoga session over at the boathouse. Wait a sec. Dog yoga? Yoga. It's a culturally appropriated stretching thing that rich white people do. Ah, I see. Yes. Uh, you do not. The glass is all covered in steam. So this is dog exercise? Why don't they just give them a rope and let them uh, run around? I'm not going to bust the boathouse on their scam. There's tons of new transplants from the north side who love stretchy pants and take in Instagram stories of their dogs. There to be printing money up in here. Uh, yeah, that's, it uh, that's also pretty, makes it uh, super easy for us to know. grab a bunch of dogs. I see some huskies over there. That's a snow-type dog. You grab the big white ones. I'll grab these two little tan guys. No corgis, Kyle. They can't pull Jack. Let's go ahead and get this. Hurry up, Jess. I think we got made. Let's go, let's go, let's go, let's go, let's go, let's go, let's go. Two minutes, sir. Jess, come on. Quick, into the shopping cart. Come on. Much. Hardly a Cadillac here, Kyle. Yeah, I couldn't get one of them nice jewels cocked with the locks on them. Whoa. Halstead, Jess. We're going to Halstead. That's where the start of the race is at. Left, left. You have to pull left. Oh, snap. I see the yogurt people with their pitchforks. Mush, mush. Uh, what does that even mean, Jess? It means oh, hold on Jess. to the dang dogs. Good morning, race fans, and welcome to the 76th Bridgeport Iditarod, stretching from Shermack all the way to back of the yards. It's a beautiful day for a dog race. And we're almost set to start this. Wait, what's this? What's this? I see a late entrance. I think in what appears to be a shopping cart being chased by a mob in Lululemon. Well, it takes all types. And they're off. Ah! Oh, that is so fun. We're just past the Renova. I think I'm going to be sick, Jess. This dog is out of control. Well, just swallow it, Kyle. We're almost going to win this thing. The Lindbergh ain't sitting too so good. Lindbergh never sits good. It's basically on the package. And was this just over the line of what appears to be a new record time? It looks like an old man in a shopping cart with a young girl in a fur coat. Yes, two bums have won the bridge point. Hey, you take that back, you jag. I'm only bum adjacent. Yes, we won. We won 500 simoleons. We did. We won. Yeah, that's my dog. Someone arrest those guys. They stole my Fifi. I'm just going to go ahead and take this check. Yoink! Kyle, scatter, scatter, serpentine! Hold on, wait. Uh, Okay, bye! Oh, I've had enough. The dogs, the race. I don't even have any money for bubbles. I guess I'm going to go back to the co-pro basement and eat whatever the guys threw down the drain. Da, 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 dee, dee. Uh, let's see it's on the radio. And welcome back to news from the service interest today. Uh, we're going to talk to the 638th declared candidate in the race to become Chicago's next mayor. Harry Wobbles? Is that even a real name? It's Harry with an I. Uh, that's it. I know what I can do to make some coin. Kyle Seismankowski is going to be a new man. I'm going to run for the mayor of Chicago. To be continued. This week on the Trump Diaries, Trump says we need wall. Trump declares a national emergency and the states sue to stop it. Officials discussed invoking the 25th Amendment to remove Trump. Trump guts the team responsible for cybersecurity during the elections. And an explosive report details Trump's war against the FBI. These are the Trump Diaries. Day 756, February 14th. Andrew McCabe confirmed officials discussed recruiting cabinet members and invoking the 25th Amendment to remove Trump from office after Trump fired James Comey. McCabe, who headed up the Justice Department, ordered the FBI to look into whether Trump had obstructed justice by firing Comey. McCabe also directed the FBI to examine whether Trump had been working on behalf of Russia against American interests. He did this in his words, quote, to put the Russia case on absolutely solid ground in an indelible fashion so the investigation could not be closed or vanish in the night without a trace. In retaliation, McCabe was fired Trump two days before his planned retirement for apparently lacking candor. He was stripped of his pension. 
The Senate confirmed William Barr as Attorney General. Barr is now in control of the investigations into links between Russia and Trump. As a reminder, last year Barr sent an unsolicited 19-page memo arguing that Trump has the power, quote, to start or stop a law enforcement proceeding and therefore he could prevent Mueller from investigating whether or not Trump committed obstruction of justice. Trump has dramatically shrunk federal teams tasked with fighting election interference by foreign countries. Those task forces are part of the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Agency. They were assembled in response to Russian interference in the 2016 election. Officials are already warning the 2020 election will be a perfect storm. The House stripped U.S. funding for Saudi Arabia's war in Yemen. The vote was 248 to 177 in favor of stopping aid. It is a major rebuke to Trump and his foreign policy. Day 757, February 15th. In a rambling address from the Rose Garden, Trump declared a national emergency at the border. The move is an end run around Congress, which refused to approve funding for the wall at all, saying, quote, I didn't need to do this, but I just want to get it done faster, that's all. Trump said he was diverting $3.6 billion from military construction projects, $2.5 billion from counter-narcotics, and another $600 million from an asset forfeiture fund. Between the $1.3 billion authorized for fencing in a spending package, Trump is going to now have about $8 billion to build his wall. Trump made a number of false statements during that press conference, part of a concerted effort to smear Democrats as socialists who are militantly pro-abortion. This is a coordinated effort by Republicans who are trying to frame the new Democratic majority in the House as anti-American. Among those false statements, Trump said about drugs coming into America, quote, certain Democrats, they say it all comes through the port of entry. It's wrong, it's wrong, it's just a lie, it's all a lie. They say walls don't work, walls work 100%. It's all a lie in a big con game. When questioned on the statistics he was quoting, with reporters noting that border crossings have plummeted, quote, you have stats that are far worse than the ones I use, but I use many stats. I also use Homeland Security. Trump also claimed that birthright citizenship is chain migration, quote, where a bad person comes in, brings 22 or 23 or 35 of his family members because he has his mother, his grandmother, his sister, his cousin, his uncle, they're all in. Trump's move immediately drew legal action, which Trump acknowledged in a strange sing-song statement to reporters. Said Trump, quote, we will have a national emergency and we will then be sued and they will sue us in the Ninth Circuit, even though it shouldn't be there. And we will possibly get a bad ruling and then we'll get another bad ruling and then we'll end up in the Supreme Court and hopefully we'll get a fair shake and we'll win in the Supreme Court. The White House announced the national emergency by tweet using the iPhone Notes app. Notes is a popular for celebrities to tweet news. This appears to be the first time it has ever been used for a major policy announcement. And the Justice Department warned Trump up to the timing of the announcement that a national emergency declaration is nearly certain to be blocked by the courts. Trump started planning for the declaration in 2018 after Speaker Paul Ryan did not deliver a dollar amount that Trump had requested for his wall. Ryan, however, had based the number on what Trump's own aides had asked him for. Trump finally said that Japan had nominated him for the Nobel Peace Prize. Japan says they didn't. Day 758, February 16th. The Supreme Court agreed to decide whether the Trump administration can add a question about citizenship to the 2020 census. A federal judge has stopped the Commerce Department from adding the question and questioned the motives of Commerce Secretary Wilbur Roth in scathing terms. Many outside analysts say the question is designed to suppress the census count. However, Roth claimed it was to promote enforcement of the Voting Rights Act. The judge in the case said, quote, that was not the real reason for Roth's decision. Following McCabe's comments about invoking the 25th Amendment, Senator Lindsey Graham said he plans to conduct a Senate investigation into what he characterized as, quote, an attempted bureaucratic coup. Graham, the chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, said he would subpoena McCabe and Rod Rosenstein if they did not agree to testify voluntarily. And former Trump aide Roger Stone and his attorneys were gagged by the federal judge in his case. Stone was ordered to refrain from making statements to the media or in public settings, quote, that pose a substantial likelihood of material prejudice. Stone, among other things, is under indictment for witness tampering. Day 759, February 17th. Trump reacted angrily to a skit mocking him on Saturday Night Live. Quote, nothing funny about tired SNL on fake news NBC. Question is, how do the networks get away with these total Republican hit jobs without retribution? Likewise for many other shows. Unfair and should be looked at. This is the real collusion. The rigged and corrupt media is the enemy of the people. Alec Baldwin, who plays Trump, responded by calling Trump a whiner. Heather Nauert abruptly withdrew her name for consideration as Trump's pick to be the U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations. Nauert, who is a former Fox News host, claimed she was stepping aside for family reasons. However, she had been widely criticized for lacking both the foreign policy experience and the political skills needed to work at the U.N. 
The USA is running a secret program to sabotage Iran's missiles and rockets. The program has never been publicly acknowledged. However, under Mike Pompeo, the program has been accelerated. It involves shipping around fake or compromised missile parts and inserting malware into compromised nuclear and laboratory systems. A White House security specialist is seeking official whistleblower protection. Trisha Newbold was suspended without pay by her supervisor. In her complaint, Newbold says her supervisor, quote, repeatedly mishandled security files and has approved unwarranted security clearances, one of which was Jared Kushner's. Newbold asked repeatedly about unwarranted security clearances for top administration officials like Kushner. He was approved over strenuous objections. Ten of Trump's judicial nominees refused to endorse Brown versus Board of Education. That ruling abolished school segregation. Day 760, February 18th. 16 states sued Trump today over his emergency declaration. The states, led by California, claim that Trump does not have the authority to siphon funds from other projects to pay for his border wall over the objections of Congress. Congress controls government spending. Several nonprofit organizations, including the ACLU, also announced plans to sue. Andrew McCabe said he briefed congressional leaders in May 2017 about the counterintelligence investigation he opened into Trump and that no one objected, including Mitch McConnell and Paul Ryan. McCabe ordered obstruction of justice and counterintelligence investigations into Trump after he fired James Comey. Quote, nobody raised concerns, not on legal grounds, not on constitutional grounds, and not based on the facts. Trump accused McCabe and Ron Rosenstein of illegal entries in his actions. Trump claimed, quote, it looks like they were planning a very illegal act and got caught. There's a lot of explaining to do the millions of people who just elected a president who they really like and who has done a great job for them with the military, vets, economy, and so much more. This was the illegal and treasonous insurance policy in full action. The state of North Carolina said election fraud was carried out by Republicans. A longtime political operative illegally collected absentee ballots and forged signatures on them. Some 1,000 absentee ballots were affected, and the candidate that operative was serving, Mark Harris, has a 900-vote margin over his Democratic opponent. North Carolina is refusing to certify that result. Day 761, February 19th. Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas said the Supreme Court should reconsider New York Times versus Sullivan, a landmark 1964 ruling that gives broad protections to journalists in libel suits filed by public figures. Claiming that, quote, Sullivan was a policy-driven decision masquerading as constitutional law, Thomas's comments come in the wake of complaints from Trump that libel laws make it too hard for public officials to win libel suits. Trump said, quote, I'm going to open up our libel laws so when they purposely write negative and horrible and false articles, we can sue them and win lots of money. So when the New York Times writes a hit piece, which is a total disgrace, or when the Washington Post, which is there for other reasons, write a hit piece, we can sue them and win money instead of having no chance of winning because they're totally protected. Roger Stone posted an Instagram photo of the federal judge presiding over his case with crosshairs near her head. A photo of Judge Amy Berman Jackson was posted alongside a caption that claimed she was, quote, an Obama-appointed judge who dismissed the Benzaghi charges against Hillary Clinton and incarcerated Paul Manafort prior to his conviction for any crime. Jackson had gagged Stone. She summoned him to court on charges of threatening a judge. House Democrats said they would begin a full-scale inquiry into White House involvement in a venture to bring nuclear power facilities to Saudi Arabia. House officials say a whistleblower claims that administration officials disregarded warnings about potential conflicts of interest as well as national security issues. The editor and publisher of an Alabama newspaper called for the Ku Klux Klan to night ride again against Democrats and the Republican Party and Democrats, claiming they are plotting to raise taxes in Alabama. The editor, Goodloe Sutton, published the editorial in the Thursday edition of the Democrat Reporter. The editorial went on to blame Democrats for the United States' involvement in both world wars, the Korean War, the Vietnam War, and the nation's long-running involvement in the Middle East. He then suggested that Klan go up there and clean out D.C. We'll get the hemp ropes out, loop them over a tall limb, and hang all of them. Day 762, February 20th. Trump attempted to have an ally of his put in charge of a widening investigation into hush money payments made to women who had claimed they had had affairs with him. That episode, which involved acting head of the Justice Department Matthew Whitaker, was revealed as part of an explosive report that detailed a near two-year secret campaign against federal prosecutors. That effort, which appears to exceed the legal threshold for obstruction of justice, is now a major focus of the special counsel's inquiry. Whitaker had previously denied in front of Congress that Trump had ever pressured him over the investigations. He is now to be recalled by House investigators for possible charges of perjury. The U.S. Department of Transportation said they would cancel nearly $1 billion in federal grant funds for California's high-speed rail project. 
California Governor Gavin Newsom said the move was political retribution for California's lawsuit against Trump's declaration of a national emergency. A grant clawback is unprecedented and appears to be illegal as well. Trump tweeted, quote, as I predicted, 16 states led mostly by open border Democrats and the radical left have filed a lawsuit in, of course, the Ninth Circuit. California, the state that has wasted billions of dollars in their out-of-control fast train with no hope of completion, seems in charge. Trump also said the failed fast train project had become hundreds of times more expensive than the desperately needed wall. A sustained and wide-ranging disinformation campaign is underway against declared candidates for the Democratic 2020 primary. The main targets appear to be Kamala Harris, Elizabeth Warren, Beto O'Rourke, and Bernie Sanders. Foreign state actors appear to be behind the majority of the campaign. This information is coming from the same feeds tied to the Russian Internet Research Agency that was involved in the 2016 Russian election interference. Robert Mueller recommended that Paul Manafort spend 19 to 24 years in prison and pay up to $52 million in fines and forfeitures. Trump's former campaign chairman was convicted in August on eight felony counts that include tax and bank fraud. A teen who was photographed wearing a red MAGA hat during a confrontation with Native American protesters has sued the Washington Post. The suit alleges that, quote, the Post ignored basic journalist, as I see, standards because it wanted to advance its well-known and easily documented biased agenda against Trump by impugning individuals perceived to be supporters. Trump tweeted out the above section of the suit with a kicker that said, quote, go get them, Nick, fake news. Trump apparently told U.S. intelligence officials their intelligence on North Korea was wrong, and anyway, he would not listen to them because Vladimir Putin had told him otherwise. Quote, I don't care, I believe Putin. Trump said that North Korea does not have missiles capable of reaching the U.S. mainland because Putin told him the missiles don't exist. They do. Trump gained four pounds last year, putting his body mass index at 30.4, which makes him clinically obese. 63% of Americans disapprove of Trump's decision to declare a national emergency. 60% of Americans also don't believe there is an emergency at the southern border. And Trump has criticized the Russia investigation nearly 1,200 times over the last two years. These are the Trump Diaries. Dana Bassett and Brian Andrews put the spotlight on Gary Noland, a Kansas City-based artist with a solo show currently up at the College of DuPage. Noland, who works with recycled materials such as dock foam and duct tape, talks about transforming other people's trash and learning to listen to your materials. Bad at Sports airs every Wednesday at 11 a.m. So we are joined in studio today by uh, Gary Noland. Welcome to Bad at Sports Center. Glad to be here, you guys. Uh, So, Gary, you got a show coming up. it starts, I think it officially opens the 7th. Is today the 7th? Today is the 7th. No, well, today's the 6th. Tomorrow's the 7th. <laughs> today's the 6th. Okay, tomorrow's well, seventh. tomorrow. According to my watch, it is the 6th. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but so the show is called Base Materials. Base uh, Materials. It's at the Cleve Carney Gallery, and that's over at the College of DuPage, right? That's right, out there in Glen Ellen. Okay. And so um, what's in the show? What are you, what are you showing? Well... It's. Uh, I feel like I have some explaining to do. Uh, it's not says all artists ever. Yes, yeah. <laughs> I'll admit it though. Fair enough. Yeah, uh, it's it's uh, mostly new work, but there's a couple of pieces back there that I still consider some of my favorites uh, from 2014, 2013, and it's um, mostly because I'm not so tied up with the chronology of in an academic sort of way about the work, not necessarily making a commodity, but trying to stay true to my process. So it's just a mid-decade retrospective. It's a mid-decade <laughs> uh, retrospective from a uh, mid-century artist. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. Wait, but is, wouldn't mid-century mean that you're working in the mid-century? <laughs> <laughs> it means I was born in you 1953. Are, you are of a mid-century. You are of the mid-century. Oh, vintage. Vintage. Yes. vintage. Vintage mid-century art. That's but, right. a, but an arts artist. So then what does a vintage mid-century art maker make? Well, it's... Uh, He's stumped. I am stumped <laughs> because I make a little bit of everything. This show out at... Uh, out at Cleve Carney's got has some brand new works on paper that have a little bit of a political content to them, and there are some other pieces of work that are probably best described as as just abstraction or formalism. So I have my I kind of like to describe myself as the gumshoe detective. I follow a lot of leads, and I'm taking them one clue at a time to see 
where that particular strain of work goes. This so, works for me. I've been very interested in exploring our potential as a murder mystery show or just like a detective show. So the long time. So Brian's we're a mystery looking, team? Brian's so so one of us, me. somebody in this room has killed somebody and we have to figure out who it is. Um, but along those lines, I saw and in the image, the kind of promotional image for base material, there is a very kind of standout cultural touchstone of a yellow border. Which oh, to, the National Geographic pieces. Right. Well, I mean, yeah. that's in the in basement. The image yeah. for base materials is like a kind of a blank. That's like white right. background with a yellow border that's and then right. kind of a line in the middle. And then I noticed not just in the promotional materials for the Cleve Carney Gallery, uh, but also on your website. As far back as it goes, it seems like you have an interest in that border as well. I think it's because that's the only way that, as a kid, I ever got out of the house was through National Geographic. I, you know, our family never went anywhere. We very rarely did anything. And so National Geographic was, it was the way out. And, you know, my mom kept those things around. She was an itinerant wanderer, too. And uh, as a, just as much as every other kind of mid-century person in the suburbs, my particular suburb was Kansas was outside of Kansas City. I think a lot of houses households kept the National Geographic around, and so it's. But you know, you're right about that that yellow border. It it seems to have its own message. It's it's that kind of an iconic kind of symbol about. In America, I think that maybe is past. It it just feels so iconic in its own way. So I'm curious to hear because I you said that some of the works in the in the show are political, and I'm going to make an assumption, which always makes me look really good, that um that the yellow board that the National Geographic works are somehow related to this political work that you're talking about. They're certainly related, although those National Geographic works are not politically related i think sometimes politics come in with the with the audience and they'll bring their own inventory of experience into any kind of a show and sometimes there's intentional politics sometimes the politics are not intentional on the part of the artist so it has something to do with what kind of uh, envelope of experience or interpretations that people coming in from the outside bring to the work. So something will be political that I hadn't intended to be political. There's a lot of founded materials in my work, and you could say that that's political. Are the are the ones that are overtly political, um, the series, the attention fascist kind of right. photographic series? Right. And that was... Um, a lot, some of my work from from the past, from the from the nineteen eighties onward, has always veered into a formalist, non literary kind of work, and then it's gone back into something that's related to to the verb or to the noun or to some sort of literary meaning, and it, and I'm totally fine with how the artwork slips into a more f formal uh, related body of work and then one that's more uh, loaded with content. So I think this is about the first time that I've shared those two bodies of work together, but to get to the attention fascist work, there are a series of, um, there are 12 complete that I have now, six are in the show, but of uh, 1964, United States Department of Agriculture posters. They're 18 by 24, suitable for framing. I, in the very fine print at the bottom, you can tell that it's, you know, they're 25 cents a piece. So, you know, you were meant to put them up in your barbershop or your basement garage or right. or something like that. But they present a, a bucolic sort of a nostalgic landscape to us these days. And... Um, Right after the Charlottesville, um, the the white uh, 
the white power. The Unite the Right rally. That's right, the Unite the Right rally. Thank you for knowing exactly the name of that horrible rally. Yeah, I don't It's in the news somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. And so it was like right after that, you know, I just felt like I had to respond. Right. And so I pulled up some techniques I knew from other periods in my studio practice and just placed these cutouts of words that I rearranged to spell attention fascists and placed them in the in the landscape. And so it's it's like fascism is as much a part of our landscape in the United States and everywhere else else for that matter, you know, as much as a mountain range is or right. a tree or a river. It's it's like it's there. And it's always there. Yeah, so there's a latent uh, element that you're that we're drawing attention to with this. Yeah, but this yeah. makes it sort of uh, it puts it into a little bit of an art historical perspective. It some people think it calls up some of the images that uh, Ed Ruscha made. That's who I thought of. You know, in the mm. from out west. So there's that. There's that too. One of my favorite presidents, top, top, top 20, um, is, was the ninth president, uh, Pensival Pentacola. Um, I don't think I've heard of that one. Um, yeah, it's, a, it's pretty obscure. Many people do learn about him. We do talk about him in the educational system a little bit. Yeah. Um, but he was, he was a good guy. Um, this was, now, you, you have to remember, this was back in a time when uh, people respected the president. Yeah, they respected the position. They didn't. They might not have agreed or respected the man, but they respected the office. They deferred to his judgment because clearly he is the well. Yeah. well back in the day, he is yeah. the, uh, the leader of the land. The leader of the land. Yes, leader of the people. He won. He won it for a, a reason. Mm-hmm. He he wasn't just given the job. He won it fair and square. Yeah. Um. So this is a time when they respected the office. They respected. His opinions, um, and before he was president, he was the president. He was another president of a big paint thinner conglomerate. Incredible, yes. Um, so, in in solidarity, once he was elected, um, Chicago. I always like to connect things back to Chicago. We existed back then. Yeah. Um, Chicago. They wanted to to support the president in his office, even though you know he was part of the Lung Party, um, which Chicago did not vote Lung at the time. Um, they wanted to show solidarity, so they turned the Chicago River white with paint thinner. That sounds is that sounds um, substantially more difficult than turning it green. Um, they needed to use a lot. In fact, the Chicago River was almost completely paint thinner. We'd done some 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 tests since then, and, and it was about eighty parts per. 80 parts per 90 paint thinner. Wow. That's that's wild. What did they use as paint thinner back then? Um, well, they used uh, uh, a complex mixture, and I don't know this exactly. Um, I believe they used a complex mixture with uh, sheep's lard and and blueberries. Well, those are both known uh, nonpolar solvents to use some chemical terms. But, yes. So I could see that. That's yes. e- that's easy to believe. Yeah. The Lump and Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. The Week in Review is overseen by Jamie Trecker, voiceovers by Shannon Van Volt, Additional production by Cole Eisenberg, Julie Wu, Sergio Rodriguez, Neil Gaynor, Lane Gerbig, Alexander Jerry, John Piotrowski, Ari Shellist, and Annie Klein. Live music production by Ari Shellist. The Lumpen theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. The Lumpen radio sting is by Dan Jugal. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com. (laughs) 